Sometimes it feels like the sun will never rise, like the birds will never sing again. Believe in That's right. When you don't know what to do, just keep on breathing. From the City of Angels in Los Angeles and from the Big Apple in New York City, welcome to all my listeners out there in Radio Land. I'm Dave, the caregiver's caregiver, otherwise known as Caregiver Dave, at caregiverdave.com, along with my lovely co-host Adrian Gruberg at thecaregiverspace.org. And we're coming to you live and on demand 24-7 on numerous syndicated radio and podcast networks on 25 global and audio video platforms, including, well, I'll just mention some of them, iHeartRadio, iTunes, YouTube, Spreaker, SoundCloud, HealthyLife.net, Vimeo, Stitcher, Radio, Blog Talk, Radio, MixCloud. All right, that's enough. And in <laughs> fact, we are proud to be voted number one caregiver podcast in the top 50 on Player FM and number three on Feedspot out of thousands. And we have an especially exciting show planned for you today, don't we, Adrian? <laughs> Yes, of course we do. Right on cue. Good girl. <laughs> but before we get started, I do want to take a moment and thank my last week's guest, Kate Kunkel. And it was a great show, and you can listen to that show and all our shows on our membership website, caregiverdave.com, and any of those uh, platforms that I mentioned above. So let's get on to today's show, founder of Hope Loves Company, speaker, author, TEDx presenter, and podcast host Jody O'Donnell Ames. She's so important. She's got three names. And <laughs> Jody founded a nonprofit based in Pennington, New Jersey, whose sole mission is to provide educational and emotional support to children and young adults who have a loved one battling ALS. And I believe that's Lou Gehrig's disease, right? That is right. Oh, Thank you so much for having me, Dave. No problem. And uh, just a reminder that uh, this is this is a live broadcast, and we uh, I think we're on Facebook Live as well. But it's also recorded for all those other platforms uh, tomorrow. But welcome to the show, and we are so excited to have you on. I always like to ask my guests just who is Dodie O'Donnell Ames, and why was she placed on this green earth? That is a great question. I kind of call myself... <laughs> A cool geek. Am I allowed to say that? I'm kind of a cool geek. <laughs> okay. Um, from being from when I was very young, um, just just a child who you know could you know was athletic and you know had the ability to do different things, but simultaneously an empath, very sensitive, very caring and nurturing. So it's kind of an odd mix that, um, yeah. you know, I grew up maybe with it as an old soul is a better way to put it. <laughs> well, that's cool. Now, tell us just briefly what's going on in your life. Uh, how did you get involved in uh, ALS and helping people? Because you must know something about it, right? That's right. Um, I learned about ALS when I was 29 years old and my late husband Kevin was diagnosed. He was 30 years old. And we went to University of Pennsylvania to get the diagnosis. Um, we had, and you can appreciate the term we, as a caregiver, yeah. uh, we um, received the diagnosis. 
Um, we had a two and a half year old at home and I had been a teacher at the time. I really didn't know a lot about ALS, uh, Lou Gehrig's disease, um, but have since learned a whole lot. Well, I'm so sorry. Uh, 29 is such an early age to lose the love of your life. How long were you married at that time? So we were married for three years at the time he was diagnosed at oh. that age. I was widowed, though, six years later. So we both, um, mm. Kevin lost his battle at the age of 36, and I was 35 when I was widowed. Mm -hmm. Wow. You're practically still in your, on your honeymoon period. I'm so sorry. Well, uh, I bet you. you. I bet you went through the grief process. Why don't you know? Before we get into your story, let's because grief is everywhere. I mean, uh, especially with caregivers. Anytime you experience loss, you go through grief. You know, there's the the denial. This isn't happening, and then the the anger. Oh, I'm so upset. This is happening, and then the the bargaining, and then the depression, and then finally, hopefully, the acceptance. So, what was your journey like? With grief. I love I love the the idea of um, really normalizing grief because what people don't understand for the most part if they haven't been in this situation is that grief begins at diagnosis right grief begins when you get that horrific um, news that someone you love is ill and is terminally ill. And you know, as I know, that there's anticipatory grief. So grief yes. and losses just continue throughout the entire process. There's the, you know, there's the, the grief and loss of not having another child and the grief of loss of not getting to see 10 years of marriage. You know, there are so there are grief and loss of not being able to walk our daughter down the aisle. So uh, I think it's important to recognize that grief really begins with that news because you're anticipating you know your mind goes to all of the things that may or may not happen. totally totally yeah it, it, it's immediate with diagnosis you yeah. know something's coming and it just hangs over your head absolutely and then and we you don't know, talk those... about that you know we talk about grief after loss that's what we talk about as, as a society yeah. And then it's we talk about, there's a lot of debate about, well, how long should we grieve? You know, uh, someone is grieving five years and someone only grieved two years says, well, you know, you should get over this. And then, you know, they, they, like a cat fight. So what's your opinion of how long should someone grieve? I don't think that we have the right to tell anyone how long they should grieve. I think that grief is a very personal and individualized experience. And yes, we should all try our best um, to to cherish memories and to live live life beyond grief. But I think that we need to be cognizant that you know experiences, especially if you're talking about losing a spouse or a child, these are part of our genetic makeup. These are ingrained in us, and. We need to honor them, and 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 really, I, I tend to acknowledge them, and then do my best to let them go. So, mm -hmm. for example, in our home, my current husband lost his wife to ALS. I lost my husband wow. to ALS. We have three children who all lost a parent to ALS. My niece lives with us. She lost both of her parents when she was twenty. 
So there's grief all around. So at Christmas time, what do we do? We we have a gift from them, right? You know, we think of something that they would have given, and we recognize that we had these wonderful people in our lives. We we honor them, and then we can go on um, because they're part of who we are. Well, let me ask you: Should we ever stop grieving? Is there is there hope that that one day um, we can we can at least I don't know you know I haven't had a lot of loss in my personal life except that my wife has lost her speech and and her mobility etc. And as bad as that may sound, it's nothing like losing a child or losing a wife or uh, I hear even miscarriages are traumatic experiences. Very. And, and I've spoken to a lot of people, and a lot of people says, uh, you never get over it. So is there a difference between never getting over it, quote-unquote, and not grieving anymore? I guess you know, maybe we should a- define what grief, what the symptoms of grief is, because when I think of grief, you know, uh, you're not able to function, you know, you, you're wearing the same clothes several days, you're, you're not eating right, you're not sleeping right, and you're just in a depressed state of mind, and you haven't really reached that magic place of acceptance. So I guess my real question is, how long should we um, not be able to embrace acceptance and the new normal? You know, I always think of the, the book... Um, I believe it was Joan Didion who wrote The Year of Magical Thinking. And <laughs> yep. she, she, lost her, she lost her husband, and for a whole year she thought her husband was going to walk through that door, right? And I always, I always think of that book. Regarding grief and how long it takes, I think that, you know, obviously you mentioned the word depression. If you are unable to function, parent, to you know, kind of return to society, then seek help. Talk to someone. Find find a way. Um, but, but grief itself, I think, just morphs. Like for me, it took me 10 years, 10 years before I could say my husband's name without crying. Wow. Mm. And many times now, because I'm still in this world of ALS, through Hope Loves Company, I meet families. Today I, I talked to a school counselor in New York who has um, – uh, is working with a 13-year-old whose dad has ALS, and just talking and having that conversation with what this child needs, I was in tears. So that's okay because I'm I'm human. I feel. I have emotions, empathy. and I have empathy, and that's okay. However, if after I had that conversation, I had to go to bed and curl up, and I couldn't function, then you know I would seek help. And and so there's a way. It's almost like. Um, you know, I can acknowledge this. I can, I can be supportive and helpful, and and use my experience to help others. But I can also think about hopes and dreams, and and that's I think the part where, um, you know, if you can't, if you're not hopeful for the next day, and you're and you're fighting depression, then that's time to really talk to someone. Well said. So let's talk about when you were a little girl and. Um... How did that play into your role as a caregiver today? Being an empath is um, is something that is 
not always accepted or understood when you're a child, you know, that sensitive kid who, um, you know, I would, I would recognize when there was a child who didn't seem to have friends and I would go over and, and um, befriend that child, always caring and, and trying to bring respect and bring um, friendship to those in need. And I wow. think that as a child, as a child, um, you know, it got to a point where I, I, I wanted to not be who that was. I wanted to avoid being that sensitive child. And my TED talk is about that. Like, you know, who just reaches out to strangers and says, hello, and how are you? And can I help you with the door when you're 12 years old? You know, who, who is that person? Um, but when I tried to stray from who I was, I didn't feel positive about who I was. Um, the more I tried to avoid it, the unhappier I was. So that's why I call myself in a way this geek, because um, as I said in my TEDx, when when I was little at Christmas and there were parties going on downstairs and I wasn't really into the huge gift party thing, I was just, you know, would always find my space, like I would need my little personal space. And um, and I would just make random calls to strangers. I would pick up the phone back in the day and <laughs> dial, and, and and I would call, make phone calls. You mean make up a I'd number? Say, yeah, no, I would just go through the, I would take the big old, you know, those big fat phone books? Oh. Yeah, and I would wow. open it up. And as long as it was it was within my, you know, I didn't want to get in trouble and get punished by my parents by dialing, you know, something that actually cost money. I would pick yeah. a number <laughs> as long as it was in the same area code. And they would say, hey, happy holidays. And they'd say, who is this? And I'd say, just someone who <laughs> And, you know, if you think about that, who is really home answering the call on, on Christmas or Christmas Eve? It's us it was usually people who were alone. And I'd have these conversations with with typically elderly people who were alone, and I was a little, I was young, and that and me, that was just that was just from a random call, you from a just, random call. Wow! And they and they would keep asking, but who is this? Is this? <laughs> and they'd say, no, it's just someone who you know. So so I took something that is childlike, like a you know the idea of a prank call, right? Just calling someone that you don't know. But turning it into a positive experience. Wow. So. You were a very special little girl, and you're, you're a very <laughs> special little adult now. Well, thank you. Did your mother play a part in, in raising you, or, or this is just uh, genetic, uh, this is how you came out? You know, it's interesting because I was just talking to someone about this recently, and my parents were not educated. They didn't have a lot of knowledge about um, information. They, they were, those were not the areas that they were able to really guide me in. However, my parents would have given their shirt off their backs for a stranger. Um, so they, yes, they were very giving, very kind-hearted. And so at, from a very young age, I was a part of that process, and I enjoyed it. And it has always stuck with me. And the fruit doesn't fall far from the tree. That's what they say. So <laughs> how old were you when you really had your first caregiving experience? Well, I, 
you know, I, I started. You had a lot of practice before you. I've got had married. a lot of practice. Yeah. yeah, I I really started babysitting when I was ten, and and when I say caregiving, you know, caregiving is. I just sure, did a post on Instagram stuff. Instagram today. It's an expression of love, right? Caregiving is an expression of love. Uh, it takes a very special person like yourself to to be a, a caregiver for a long time, but. But parents are caregivers, right, We're of our children um, in that sense. And as a babysitter, I started really using my nurturing. And I recognized that, you know, at a young age, I was responsible. And I had the ability to, to teach, to really teach the child that I was working with, to play with them, to read to them. And, and also, I, I thought of it as, Parents are out and they have something to do. And how could I make this, my experience as a babysitter, um, wonderful for them? So, for example, um, and you I don't know if this happened. seriously, to, didn't you? I did. I took it very seriously. I ended up <laughs> nannying for years. But, you know. I bet you were in great of, demand, too. <laughs> I was. I was. Um, but, you know, the idea of, and I guess that's an empath, right, putting your how you would want something to, to roll out and applying that to others. But, you know, cleaning up the toys, doing the dishes, you know, making sure that the, the tub was cleaned out from all their little letters when they were done <laughs> taking them. And that was my, my approach of, so in a way, the caregiving experience was universal to, the, to everyone in the family that, that I met. Like, how can I make this experience best for all of them, as well as, um, I think a big part of that during that same time, my mother was um, kind of a caregiver to an elderly woman who lived across the street who did not have any family. She was from England. And and that whole experience of, A, I never knew anyone from another country, right? Um, and, who, and she was... Um, you know, she brought that culture, having tea and having biscuits, which uh -huh. I knew nothing about. And like I, fire. yeah, and at a very <laughs> young age, I would go over and sit with her to keep her company. And so, again, it was the sense that I knew that um, you know, she was lonely. I knew she was lonely. She would say, you know, she'd be yelling at somebody stepping on her lawn. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I mean, that's how lonely she was. If someone stepped on her lawn. She was like, why are they on my lawn? Because she had nothing else to do. So <laughs> that was a, she communicated to someone. That she did. She exactly. Someone. She did. You know, she had a she had an interaction. And so again, that was another part of, well, when I looked at the whole looked at the eyes, maybe adult eyes as a child of that there are a lot of people in need in different ways. You know, that, that, that they need care. Well, listen, we're going to take a break. I think you are the nicest person I've ever met, next to Adrian, of course. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to go on a break. We'll be right back. Don't go away. Dave Nassani, the caregiver's caregiver, has just released his sixth book entitled It's My Life Too, Thrive to Stay Alive as a Caregiver. It was specifically written for caregivers who know they should be putting their needs first, but just don't know how. Dave is the sole caregiver to his wife, Charlene, since 1996. He knows firsthand what caregivers are going through because he is one. 
He now speaks all across the country, offering caregivers his amazing caregiver support package. Even the airlines tell us that in the event of an emergency, to put your oxygen mask on first before you help your child with their mask. They know that those who don't heed their advice often black out, thus becoming unable to help either themselves or their child. And caregivers are exactly the same way. It's my life too. Thrive and stay alive as a caregiver will help caregivers who are neglecting their sleep, diet, and social life and learn to put their needs first. Pick up your copy today or buy one for your special caregiver on sale everywhere and at caregiverdave.com. And we're back on the Caregiver Dave Show with our guest Jody and Adrian, and I'm Dave. So, my goodness, I'm just, I just like you so much. <laughs> I like You're, you as well, and I have to tell you, this doesn't happen typically, but in your <laughs> eyes, your eyes are so much more brilliant on the screen than in your pictures. Really? So, sure. yes, they are. They're gorgeous. They're a beautiful color. Oh, you sound like my wife now. They're hazel. But it depends on what color I wear. Oh, thank you. Mutual admiration society here. Um, <laughs> so how did you feel about caregiving when you started doing it? Obviously, you loved it, right? And you knew that this was something you'd probably be doing the rest of your life? Yes, I, I feel that... Um... You receive so much more than you give in the caregiving mm. experience. Yet I really and truly appreciate um, understanding that caregivers need to take care of themselves. And it's a topic that we at ALS, um, at, at our ALS group, at support groups, and at Hope Loves Company um, talk about quite frequently because it, it seems like an impossible goal to take care of yourself when you're taking care of someone who's terminally ill. So I, I'm, I'm excited to learn more about that. Um, but yeah, I always knew that it's something that brings me joy and I learn a lot. I, I see I'm currently taking care of my neighbor who lives with ALS and last night I was, um, was there while she, she just started a BiPAP machine and so I was there for uh -huh. three hours while she had it on because she was nervous, she can't communicate, she can't move. So I sat next wow. to her and worked while she had her BiPAP on. And of the idea, you did. well, the idea that someone, um, you know, she teaches me so much about life, humility, strength, grit, wow. passion, and so I, I, you know, I benefit. You know, Adrian and I uh, are in touch with lots of caregivers through our groups, of course, and. Um, Many of them, I don't know if you would, would you say more than half of them, Adrian, um, just have a, not a great attitude, you know, they're, they don't oh. have, they don't <laughs> have a love and an appreciation for it and they don't consider it a joy. They're just No, miserable. not at all. And not they at look, all. you know, they look at the glass as not even half empty, just empty, you know? Well, a lot of them, the people who've been taking care of people for a really long time and people who have ungrateful people that they're taking care of mm -hmm. who have terrible attitudes about their own illness and are totally abusive and are appreciative of yeah. what kind of loving care you might be providing 
kind of make you want to take the love out of it. And yeah, you I mean, end up enough. just being there to take care of them and not get the benefit of it. I, You know that I'm a natural caregiver too. I'm an empath. I got a great deal out of it. I went yeah. into it knowing exactly what I was in for and had done, yeah. it, done it on many levels before, but once we got that diagnosis, you know, I was I was just in it. I knew what was going to yeah. happen, and I was in it. And some of your care receivers didn't treat you very well, and yet, you know, you made the, the most of it. Uh, it's a hard enough job, but when they do stuff like that, it just really makes a hard job even harder. So my question, Jody, is um, have you ever had uh, someone like that who, you know, didn't no. uh, appreciate all of the your positivity, positivity, and no, I I honestly can say that no, um, no one has you. ever kind of pushed back at <laughs> at my positivity. But I can understand that we're all not, you know, no one is, no one has to be a natural caregiver, right? It's not everyone. Yeah, and many thing. are not. In fact, Don't many have the personality and the traits and the gifts uh, <laughs> that are not conducive to caregiving. And that's Absolutely. why it's so hard for them. You're, you're very fortunate to just be a natural born caregiver and you enjoy it. And it's unfortunate that, you know, you had to actually become a caregiver to, to your husband and then actually lose him. That's the sad part. But, you know, you, you handled it very well and uh, you always look for something good to get out of it. Well, I remember when when Kevin was vented, um, when he was put on a ventilator, he was in the hospital for eight days. And I did not leave the hospital. And because, as David knows, I'm very petite, I could just snuggle right in the <laughs> hospital bed. And when the nurses, like, in the middle of the night tried to take blood from him, they'd be like, let him sleep. I'd pop up and, and say, please let him sleep. <laughs> but after he was vented, he couldn't communicate. So I didn't want to leave him in a hospital Mm -hmm. where he couldn't speak sure. or move. He had so, no voice. And he had no voice. So I remember my brother-in-law came to visit, and sadly he has since to um, passed. But he came to visit, and we went down. He's like, come downstairs, let's have a cup of coffee. And I love coffee. So we <laughs> went down in, in the hospital and had a cup of coffee. Um, and he, you know, what he said to me was, there's no doubt in my mind that you were put on this earth for this role. Because when Kevin couldn't speak, I could still read his lips. And I read mm. his lips for a year and a half um, after him being vented, which is something really hard. Like, not everyone is able to do that. Mm. And and it, it really, your question and your statement goes back to who we are as individuals. And I think when Kevin and I were first diagnosed, I went into a support group where everyone just vented. Vented, vented, vented. And when I uh, came home from that support group, I needed to do some kickboxing. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I needed to put some Nirvana on and do some kickboxing and get all that anger out of me because that's not who I am. So I think recognizing, A, who we are, what is the end product that you want to accomplish? So if you're not able to, to provide the care, support the person who can. You know, support... 
support the family members who are caregivers, who are natural caregivers and who want to be in that role, support them in that role. Um, and, and that's where the whole idea of Hope Loves Company came in because misery does love company. And I yeah. didn't want to be about misery. And if you, if you get in, into a group of people who are all complaining about that experience, that's okay. It wasn't for me. I didn't feel any better. I felt worse. Did you yeah. leave that group? I did. I never went back. Yeah. So because you are the perfect caregiver, and don't feel funny that I'm saying that, because you really are, even <laughs> though no one is perfect, I'm sure you have your faults, I'm sure you have your moments, but um, how did burnout, I'm assuming you would periodically get burned out, that you would periodically start crying, you would periodically say, I can't take this anymore, and, and you'd have to put on the Nirvana and, and do the kickboxing more than once, but... Um, how how did you handle the burnout? Uh, how did you handle when the kickboxing and the nirvana didn't help? What did you do next? You know, it's such a great question, but I think everyone needs an outlet. Everyone needs an outlet that brings them joy. So for me, I had these two little things that I did, and it's going to sound really funny and simple, <laughs> but I told you I like coffee, so. When I was on night duty with Kevin and the nurse came at 7 a.m. and before I had to get Alina up for school, I drove to Wawa, <laughs> honest to goodness. I got a cup of coffee and a bagel and the paper and I sat in the car and read and cried. That's what I did every day. And half the time, I don't even know, I think I was still in my PJs and I could care less. <laughs> um, but I sat there, I got it out. And, you know, if you listen to a really sad song, it, it really helps that process. You know, I yep. listen to a sad song. So you were encouraging it. <laughs> I've, got encouraging it. I've got yes. that song for me. Yes. Whenever, whenever I need it, I, I have my go-to song. <laughs> whenever you need right. a good cry, you mean? Yep. So yeah, that it just, it just just comes out full blast. Yep. What is okay. that song, by the way, Adrian? It's from Falsettos. It's from a musical. It's it it's called Where Would I Be If I Hadn't Met You? Who would I be if I hadn't met you? Well, it's nice to know that even okay. a perfect caregiver needs to cry and needs to vent and needs to blow off steam and needs to have coffee and a bagel in her car all by herself while she's crying, listening to a sad song, because that just means we're all human, too. You know, and there is no such thing as a perfect caregiver. Some are better than others, but we can learn, right? We can learn to be a better caregiver. Have you been teaching other people how to, how to, you know, thrive as a caregiver? How to do it better? How to? I, I want to say the word survive, but but you know, some people surviving is good enough if they're not even surviving, and then once they survive, then maybe they can shoot for thriving. But uh, are you, you're helping people, right? I think just from making the initial call, so everyone who comes to Hope Loves Company, uh, you know, has someone they love with ALS, and just starting that initial conversation, a voice on the other end who has survived, um, and not only survived, but has raised three incredible children, and who, now adults, um, and who has still followed her dreams, and also has simultaneously 
done something um, truly valuable in memory of Kevin. You know, so I think just just having those very candid conversations. Will I ever be able to? You know, I just had a conversation yesterday. You could, you will appreciate this. Will I ever be able to eat meatloaf again? <laughs> now, what does that have to do with caregiving? It was probably his favorite that? dish. I don't know. So, you know, what happens when someone's sick, right? We bring them food. We bring <laughs> meatloaf. We bring lasagna. We bring things that we can make in bulk and feed our family and Chicken feed another family. Right. So, so this gentleman who just lost his spouse to ALS can't look at meatloaf. He can't look at meatloaf. Will I ever be able to look at meatloaf again without thinking of my, <laughs> my wife dying, you know? So I think just... A, starting to connect with positive people who accept you for who you are, where you are. We are all in a different part of this place in this journey. We all um, we all um, face it differently, and we all take different time to get to a place where we feel normal again. Um, it, it took me years and I just, you know, I do my best and I wouldn't say I was coaching or teaching, but I do my best in giving hope while also recognizing that it's okay to be, still be grieving or still be, um, you know, in tears when you see a commercial about something that resonates. That's okay. Yeah. Was there anyone... I don't think I don't think it's necessarily a teaching, uh, but there's this aspect of being a good guide or be, being an escort to just help someone along the way and and be there for them. And, and that part of it, even though you might not think of it as teaching or coaching, it, it has that effect. Boys them thank up. you. I, thank you. I agree with that. I know that I would call people who were further along in the ALS journey, and I needed to, you know, ask questions. And now people are doing that for me. So I really right. look at it as paying it forward and being the resource that I was able to receive. Yeah. When I needed who did it. Who did you look to? The way people look to you. I mean, did you have an inspiration? In, in the caregiving role? In the caregiving world, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, Kevin was very young when he was diagnosed, but there were several other um, loving couples who were in the journey who were 20 years older, who, um, you know, I, I saw what they were doing, how they were helping to feed someone, how they were wiping their mouths afterwards, um, you know, fixing their head that, you know, they can no longer hold up. To me, it was, um, you know, I looked at it and thought, well, this is pretty normal, right? This was yeah. normal for them, and it can be normal for me. Sure. So what was, your, what was your favorite activity of taking care of yourself? Um, I mean, you know, some people go for their hobbies, uh, like I like to sail, I like to ride my bike, I like to get a massage. Mm. What were your self-care uh, favorite things to do. I'm laughing because um, <laughs> I have some I have some great caregiving stories that I can share with you that are pretty yes, funny. But share all but you I'm want. going to I'm going to start yeah. with my my first investment was an 80 pound boxing bag and a speed bag. 
<laughs> now, I weigh 96 pounds. So if you, if you think about <laughs> If you think about this large 80-pound boxing bag, bag. I had my brother come. My brother came, and in our garage, he put in a heater. He installed a heater and a wall on the side of the wall. He installed the the 80-pound punching bag and the speed bag. And then I got myself, um, you know, a, a kind of a kick-butt stereo, put it out there. Yeah. And when the nurse came at night, at midnight, so we had a nurse from midnight to seven, I would go out there and just work work out. And that really was my saving grace. Um, working out and and connecting with others. Did you get but good like, on the speed bag? I got pretty good. Yeah, it's actually I still have it. <laughs> I still have it. It's in the basement. I haven't used it for a while, but I still have my boxing gloves and my um I did give away the punching bag. Oh. Um, I, still have, I still have the speed bag, um, but my nephew wanted the punching bag, so I passed <laughs> that along. Um, wow. But that was the that was something that, you know, I had this – the way that I look at it is, is I had this energy, and it could either be a positive <laughs> energy or a negative energy. So I knew I had to utilize it in some way to keep that energy positive. Where did you get the idea of the bags, though? Did you get it from somebody else, or just uh, you just wanted to hit something, or what, where did that come from? <laughs> you know, I, mm-hmm. I, a, I needed to be strong because I, again, am, am a small woman. My husband was 183 pounds when he passed away. Oh. He was 143 pounds, but I did everything from clean his feeding tube, change his trach, roll him, shower him. You know, change the bed sheets, move him in the Hoyer lift. I needed to be strong, and that was something that I do believe that you know we should we we should be strong. And it was something that I had to work on um, to get strong enough to be able mm-hmm. to do those things. So it, it was a nice combination of stress relief and strengthen, strengthening simultaneously. Now, be honest with this next question. Um, a lot of people. <laughs> A lot of people sometimes feel resentment, guilt, um, you know, they don't like what they're doing and they wish they would just have the courage or whatever to just walk out, desert. I know nobody would ever do that, but is it wrong to have those feelings? I don't think it's wrong to have those feelings. Um, you know, life is hard. So we have those feelings, you know, some, I'm, as parents, sometimes we're like, wow, if I could just strike for a week and not do any cooking, <laughs> cleaning, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and, you know, have my kids totally be self-reliant, wouldn't that be great? So, you know, we, we're, all, we're normal, we're human, so we do have these feelings. Again, I, I highly recommend that you talk about them. And my mother-in-law once said something that I thought was interesting. So... I did end up hospitalized twice for fatigue. Wow. Oh um, so that's your burnout. For low blood, low blood sugar, which um, I have a lot of energy, and sometimes just getting engrossed in that role, I would forget to eat, and then I'd pass out, and then I'd end up at the hospital. Wow. And, and what she said to me was, you know, you look at caregiving as a plate, right? Um, one person could cook the entire meal and be exhausted, or you could gather as a group and somebody provides the salad, 
somebody provides the vegetables, somebody provides the meat, and you fill that plate as a whole group. And and I think after the second time I was in the hospital, I really understood what she was trying to say. Mm-hmm. Allow everyone to bring their skills to the table. And as I'm currently caregiving for my neighbor, it's the same thing. You know, someone comes to help with her nails. Someone comes to help with her BiPAP. Someone helps her go to swimming. And and that way, when you kind of, you not only give everybody the opportunity to have quality time with someone they love, but you also, the way she stated it, which again has resonated with me, is you also allow that person the opportunity to learn and grow from that experience. So to be a better person. Um, if we're not, you know, if we've never been exposed to caregiving, something that's, um, you know, could be a common problem like waiting in line at the bank might just totally throw your day for a loop, right? But when you've recognized that somebody can't move or speak, and they're dependent on you for this, for this, um, really just for life, for sustainability, um, it changes your perspective. So when you think about caregiving as an opportunity to grow and learn and evolve, to be the best person you can be, that's a pretty powerful statement. Yeah. What are some things that you would often feel guilty about? Oh, wow. I know what I really felt guilty about when when Kevin was vented, he could no longer speak or eat. And I couldn't eat um, yeah. in front of him. He loved food, loved it, loved his cheesesteaks, you know, loved his steak, loved his pasta. And, you know, to have to sustain on formula, on a feeding tube, just, that just broke my heart that he couldn't enjoy that pleasure of food. So I knew I, I couldn't eat in front of him. I, I would eat in the other room um, or sneak food, but I couldn't just eat in front of him. And how did he feel about that? He encouraged me to eat, you know, he would, he would In front say, of him or? In front of him, he's like, you know, you got to eat and just do it. It's okay. So eventually. Was, was it really okay with him? It, it was okay. He, he was an amazing man. And so it was your problem, the guilt. It was my problem. It was my guilt. Because you're so compassionate I, and empathetic. I have a question about whether, whether or not Kevin was ever outwardly angry if if he could express how angry he was that this is what was happening to him and and how the two of you dealt with that you know i i wouldn't say that we were ever and he was ever angry i'd say he would get anxious about things that he couldn't control so for example after being ventilated we were there at the hospital for a week we came back and then he had an impacted bowel. You know, that happens. Um, then we had to go back to the hospital. He would get anxious about it. Right. But not mad, um, you know, but, but anxious. And the way that we dealt with that and the way we dealt with the whole illness was to, to really share it with everyone we loved, to um, – we had our, our priests come in and read – read with us each week. So we, we focused on the things we could control. 
Um, and we also did some just fun things to quote unquote celebrate the crazy things that were happening. So yeah. for example, when he could no longer lift his arms well, we had kind of a cutting party where we took all of his shirts and we brought people over and we cut the shirts down the back. Right? He's in a wheelchair, so you can't see the back of the shirt. Right. And we would put them on this way. So we had a cutting party. We cool. um we had um it's probably not legal, but <laughs> we watched this we watched the survivor and we had a pot going for, you know, um gambling for who's gonna you know, it was like a dollar <laughs> each. But we had a party of twenty people and we all put in a buck to see who was gonna get kicked off the island. We made it fun. Um, I remember vividly when Mike Tyson had a fight and bit off someone's ears. We took pictures of everybody Evander biting Evander Holyfield. <laughs> exactly, Evander. And um and so, you know, we just tried to embrace the the parts of life that were fun and beautiful, regardless of ALS and to control the things that we could. And then the mm -hmm. things that we couldn't control were like, okay, we can't control this. How can we make this normal for us in, mm -hmm. in our yeah. in our world? The new normal. And so we did these things. Well, listen, we're going to take another break, so we'll be right back. Don't go away. One Arm, One Leg, 100 Words, Overcoming Unbelievable Hardships, is about Charlene, a stroke survivor. Back in 1996, Charlene was a healthy, normal, very active 52-year-old woman whose amazing talents resemble that of both a Martha Stewart and a Wonder Woman. But all that changed when she suffered a massive stroke that left her severely speech-impaired and paralyzed on the right side. Who am I? My name is David. I've had the privilege of being Charlene's husband since 1975. We had a wonderful fairy tale, storybook-like courtship that culminated in our marriage a year later. Charlene had just come out of a marriage where after 10 years, she received two black eyes and a broken nose by her former husband when he came home high on speed. Charlene believed in no second chances of any kind for abuse, so she left. Finding herself all alone in the world with her five and ten-year-old daughters, Cynthia Lorraine and Deborah Lynn, she started raising them by herself for the next two years. Then fate brought us all together. After falling in love with Charlene, Cindy, and Debbie, our love then produced Rebecca Elizabeth. We had a wonderful, normal life for the next 20 years. But today, things are very different for everyone. How about the reaction of nine-time Grammy and Dev Award recipient godfather of contemporary gospel Christian music, Andre Crouch. Charlene just won't let the promises of God go, and she has not let her circumstances get in the way of her faith. She's not just a survivor, she's more than a conqueror, as the Bible states. You'll be encouraged by her testimony, regardless of what you're going through. Available everywhere. And we're back on the Caregiver Dave show. I'm Caregiver Dave, <laughs> and we're with Jody O'Donnell Ames and our co-host Adrian Gruberg. And while I was watching that, uh, I don't think I really watched it for a long time. I was thinking, God, if what happened to you happened to me so early in my marriage, I would have been devastated, you know. So I think God just gives us what he knows we can handle, and for some reason, you're a strong lady, and he knew you can handle that. And it doesn't sound fair, and and maybe one day we'll find out why bad things happen to good people. 
but it sure does happen a lot. But getting back to caregiving, <laughs> um, what uh, what encouraged you? You know, books, uh, websites, uh, support groups. Uh, what what helped you besides you know sheer willpower and determination to 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 stay alive and stay out of the hospital? There's a great book called Share the Care. Are you familiar with it? I've yes. heard of that one, yes. I know. Yeah. yeah, called Share the Care. And my sister-in-law brought that to us, and she organized a group of 60 people, Dave, 60 people who helped us wow. um, with things that we needed to do. So mm -hmm. um, that was a huge um where did you find there. 60 people from? Well, they were family and friends, and they all so share the care is about getting a group of volunteers together to, to help provide care for someone right. who's chronically or terminally ill. And, for example, the 60 people, um, it was just the people who wanted to, in some way, shape, or form, bring their talents to our to the, our needs. Wow. And so we had we needed an addition because Kevin could no longer get upstairs to the bedroom. So some of those men helped to build the addition. Some of the women helped to paint it. Um, somebody brought meals. Um, somebody picked up prescriptions. And that was that was extremely helpful because yeah, I bet. The idea have you of passed, have you passed that on to other people? I have. Constantly, yes, I'm constantly look. sharing that with others, yes. um, and even my neighbor. You know, as as I'm talking about her friends, you know, someone is is coming in and decorating her house for the holidays. So it's that same same idea because yes. we all want to feel normal and we want to get these things done, but we no longer have the time or the energy or the resources to get them done. So if people can pitch in and help, then the end result is still the same. You know, you still have your groceries in the refrigerator. You still have the prescriptions you need. Um, you still have the addition. And, and we were just really lucky. And I think that's because we were so young, we had the, a group of, of young people who mm -hmm. were, were willing to just roll up their sleeves. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you've answered a lot of my questions, and you've given a lot of advice. Uh, is there any advice that you haven't given yet that uh, that you would like to? Absolutely. I, you know, I I try to share this with families, but make sure that if you are in a caregiving role, that your local police and your local fire department know what's happening in your home, um, and also to have all of the information, the medical information on the refrigerator, because I was an EMT for five years, and when you walk into a home with somebody there who's unconscious and no one else is there, you know, it's it's nice to have those resources available so you can get the best care you need. Yeah. And, and also, yeah, and also um, the funny story you were, that You I, were an EMT? I was an EMT for five years. After Kevin passed, wow. I, I wanted to give back. Um, we... At one point, I was he was still using the bathroom toileting by himself, and he went to get up from the toilet, fell right back down, and ended up, and I don't know how, ended up around the toilet on the floor. 
so like an L shape, and he hit the back of the toilet, so there was water everyone, everywhere, so I had to call the fire department. So, um, you know, so many times I needed, I needed help like that. And, um, and so I, again, I wanted to pay it forward and became an EMT and, and rode the ambulance for five years, providing wow. um, that help to others in my community um, after, after he passed. Okay, what were you saying before I interrupted you about that? <laughs> oh, the last thing I was going to say is that, um, you know, those things happen and we're not prepared and, and, you know, we try to live in the present, you know, what can I handle today and how can I handle it without looking too far ahead sometimes or, yeah. so um, we got a generator because Kevin was on a ventilator mm-hmm. and we got a generator and he had a hospital bed that was an air mattress to prevent bed sores. Mm. So I'm alone with him. The power goes out. I had to run into the garage to turn on the generator. And in that moment, his ventilator went off and the bed engulfed him because it was an air mattress. (laughs) So whenever I meet people who are in this role, you know, I, I think of, I say, think of the things, the, the wild, crazy things that mm-hmm. can happen and have a plan in place. Because, you know, to, be, to not have any light and figure out how to, how to start a generator to get the ventilator and the bed back and to come back into the room to see him engulfed. I mean, literally, the, the mattress just, like, engulfed him. Did you panic? Um, and I pat, you know, I was I panicked, but I knew I had to react, and I had to go in and do that, and 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 that there was only one answer, and that was to get the generator going. Um, but to and <laughs> Is to it practice, the kind that you had to pull, uh, pull yeah, the cord, it was like a lawnmower. And to actually, you know, I'm a I'm a visual learner, and I'm a I'm a I'm a doer. So for someone to say. This is how this ventil- this is how this generator works is not going to work for me. I had to have the plan out, you know. I had to have a flashlight by it just in case, yep. and the instructions. And I had to try it a few times so that I actually knew what to do. Because when you're in an emergency situation, right, you you have that fright or flight, and sometimes it's hard to think clearly. Wow, that is interesting. So um, we're just about uh, wrapping this up here. Um, How can people get a hold of you or learn more about ALS? Do you only um, do the ALS or any caregiver will do or tell me how that is? Oh, that's a, no one has ever asked me that question, Dave, but. um, Adrian has many different groups, you know, that, uh, and so uh, some, there are some groups out there that, that will only do. No, we're only cancer. You know, no, we're only right. stroke. And, you Absolutely. Know, I was just wondering well, I, if you were also. If I can be of help to someone, um, they can definitely reach out to me. Um, so there's, you know, if it's specific to ALS, there's hopelovescompany.com. All of the information is there. And when you connect with Hope Loves Company, I'm, I, I will be calling you um, as the first outreach, the first touch to, to share this journey. I also have this book, Someone I, ha- I Love Has ALS, so um, I, I, I send that out as well. Um, but if you're a caregiver and you would like to speak with someone or just connect with me, you can also reach me um, 
my website is joaspeaksalon.com. I'm a coach speaker, and as you as you mentioned, yeah. um, and it's and I'm also now a podcast host. So I have um, a podcast yeah. that I'm doing on life of life stories about resilience and hope. So you, I would both be happy to be on your show if you have. Uh, oh my gosh, I was just going to I was going to <laughs> say that I, I would love to have you on. Um, I've only done one episode right now, but um, I'm so grateful for this opportunity. I thank you for all that you're doing and demonstrating as an example and and mentors sure. to others. Let me thank know you for what if you're you need doing. any help, you know, producing yeah, the show or advice or anything like that. Yeah, thank you. And happy happy birthday early and um thank you for yeah. including me in this in this wonderful um, Thank you. And show. what if somebody wants to see your your TED talk? How do they do that? So if you Google my name, Jody O'Donnell Ames, um and, and I always laugh when I say this because I've just kind of gone with the flow, but there are thirteen pages of <laughs> of resources available between books and, and television and with your name on it? Yeah, yeah. Congratulations. That's not yeah. easy to do. Well, thank you. Thank you. Um, you know, you just speak about this, right? A lot of people yeah. aren't talking about caregiving. Dave, no, and that's a big yeah. problem. Right. It needs to be you know? in some government health care plan somewhere, you know. Yeah. It's in no Hawaii. Hawaii uh, has a $1,500 respite uh, payment that any caregiver can apply for. It doesn't matter how much money you make or you don't make. You know, but that's only for a certain number of people a year or a certain amount of money. Well, they only money. have so much money, so it only goes yeah. so far. But right. each year they try to increase it more and more. And, and you know, we're, trying to get, we're trying to get stipends for caregivers through the government. I was just going to say some states do provide stipends now. I think Massachusetts is one of them. It's a monthly stipend, and, and I think that's, that's a great first start, but we have a long way to go. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, as as uh, politicians start to become caregivers, then the awareness will increase. So there you go. So true. That's so and, true. Uh, unfortunately, a lot of the politicians are multimillionaires, so they they just hire somebody. But hopefully, uh, well, you, you got know, Rosalind Carter. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> but she's a very nice person, and you're a very yes. nice person. And it was so nice meeting you. So nice having you on the show, and. Uh, we're going to do it again sometime, and thank you so much for coming on the show. And Adrian, thank you for for being here every week. And um, I think I'll just say bye bye. We'll see you next week. All right, thank you. Sometimes it feels like the sun will never rise, like the birds will never sing. Keep breathing, take it in and let it out, keep breathing.